Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. We've got a regular guest on the show again, Kel. This time we're talking about the housing crisis. You're very welcome back to the show. It's good to be back here, Ian. We're looking forward to today's one. This is a really topical one, I think. Certainly is. There's a lot of uh, noise around it at the moment. I know a lot of others are talking about this topic. I've got a good few friends that are interested in this for a variety of different reasons. I know myself, I'm looking to get on the property ladder in the next couple of years, uh, moving into a property in South Dublin, renting with my girlfriend in the next couple of weeks. But that's to save up to to buy in the next few years as well. So, but that's my angle. I'm sure everyone has other different angles. You know, um, there's a lot of people giving out who are on the market to buy, but then there's a lot of people happy who have properties looking to sell because a lot of money to be made at the moment. So I was thinking, where do we jump in with this? And probably for me, um, considering Ireland has one of the highest percentage of homeowners in Europe, I thought we'd focus on location and the importance of location. So a couple of people talk about how location is fundamental in terms of the value of the property because uh, uh, it's the one thing that you can't change. For example, if you're located in the city, you're, you're probably close to more employment opportunities, more amenities, schools, healthcare. So what are your thoughts on location in terms of driving up or down the price of a property? Do you think that it's it's a, got a good uh, good reason to increase or decrease the uh, price of a property? That is the million euro question, isn't it? How do you value a property even? Mm. Because it was it was much more logical before COVID because you can kind of say, well, I work in Dublin, so I kind of need to live in Dublin, and therefore my family needs a certain size home. And whether you're single or you had a couple of kids they're they're all of a sudden your range was narrowed down an awful lot because you couldn't live in Limerick and work in Dublin not really unless you had an apartment or something which is an extra expense in itself but now with COVID and the national broadband scheme whatever your opinion on it it is giving more people more options of where they live Mm -hmm. so I location is really important but I think it's going to become much more person dependent because a lot of people who would have been forced to live in Dublin because of their work, and that's a huge factor when it comes to location and buying your home, that may not necessarily be a factor now, because when you have the likes of Twitter, and Twitter was one of the first ones to come out and say, hey, look, that's fine. You can live anywhere you want in Ireland, no problem. But if you pick somewhere outside Dublin, we're going to pro-rata your salary. And that works fine, because living in Leitrim is most likely going to be notably less expensive than living in Dublin or even Cork or some. And they, they, I, I don't know exactly how they're working it, but they are uh, prorating people's salaries if they do live outside Dublin. So now suddenly somebody who might have had a, a lovely manager's job, for example, and they're on a really good salary, they can still relatively have that really good salary, but the lifestyle that comes with living by the sea. And a house there is actually worth a lot of money to that person because their family gets a lifestyle. They get to work from home 
and they have this lovely balance that they wouldn't have necessarily had in Dublin. So that might push the house prices on the coast up a little bit more. It could uh, push the commuter belt out because you can have big, bigger gardens and you're, you know, you're near mountains more. Mm. So location is always going to be important. But I think there's an argument for it not being necessarily work based, more lifestyle based. But like, I don't know, we'll have to see how that all pans out. Absolutely. Do you think there's going to be more people moving outside of Dublin? I think in many ways, yes, because I know there was a daft article out recently and it was just talking about how how prices outside Dublin were rising higher than prices in Dublin. And you can see that happening because if you have an option and I'm going to say kids because it's that's a big factor for a lot of people in how they choose where to go. Um, And it's it's a good one to illustrate to Mm. kind of get the point across. And if you have the option to live in the countryside and work from home and only have to maybe go to the office once a week. Well, then suddenly the counties around Dublin are looking a lot more favourable than Dublin itself. But then if you're young and you want to have the lifestyle and the nightlife and everything that comes along with being young and having a job, but being in the city could be brilliant. And I don't it would be a bit before your time, but I remember studying geography back in the 90s, talking about 80s Dublin, that there had been a huge revamp of Dublin's inner city because Dublin's inner city had been hollowed out before. And there were mm-hmm. house prices in the middle of Dublin city were really, really low. So younger people were coming in with studio apartments and things like that. And then they were able to get places really affordable. But then obviously the Celtic Tiger hit, prices shot up. So nowhere was affordable anymore. And now COVID has hit. And I honestly don't know how that'll all work out. So you were talking about house prices coming down. I've got a couple of statistics to share with you here. Um, it said that property cycles run in seven-year cycles. So if we go back and look at uh, the last couple of years of data, from 05 to 06, property prices increased by 14.9% nationwide. From 06 to 07, they increased by 7.5%. And then we were ended the, at the end of the cycle. Very little, in fact, no international funds were invested in, in Ireland at this particular time. Then 08, they went down by 6.9. 09, they went down by 18.1. And 2010, they went down by 13.4. And then they started to shoot up again by increasing by 17.1% in 2011. Demand was incredibly low because, and this is why they showed up, people couldn't afford to get mortgage approval. So if we fast forward to seven, eight years down the line, it brings us to 2018, 2019, property prices increased by 2.3%. And in 2020, property prices increased by 0.3%. So in terms of these property prices going up, there's a couple of influences. And through my research, I've had four main influences that impact or influence the rise in property prices. One is access to capital. Are banks still willing to lend? Two is inflation. Um, Some experts talk about they don't expect to see an increase in inflation. Three is GDP. Um, We've had a positive GDP in 2020 uh, and a 3.4% prediction for 2021, which is uh, potentially going to add a small increase in house prices. And then unemployment is four. If unemployment goes down, house prices goes up. Unemployment at the moment, I can't find any recent stats for it, but of Q2 of 2020, it was 24%. Now, I know a lot of that's impacted by coronavirus and people being on PUP. Um, Once COVID settles, the dust might settle there. 
But uh, oh, and population growth was one that I added because uh, by 2025, we're expected to be a population of over 5 million and therefore more people will be looking for property. So if we look at each one of these individually, Kel, um, access to capital, banks still willing to lend. If we see a 1% increase in inflation, we can expect to see a 10% increase in house prices. What are your thoughts on that? This this is where the housing market is never in isolation. Housing market is as a result of, I don't even know how many factors, but from a bank's perspective, and I'm a, there's two sides to every coin, and yeah. it's not that the banks don't want to lend. You see, when the last crash happened, a lot of it was because lending was so fluid. Ireland never had money before, and now, like back then, 2006, 7, 8, we were getting 100% mortgages. We were actually getting more than 100% mortgages in some states because you needed to put some stuff in the house and things like this. I but, heard that. Crazy. 20 yeah, grand extra. Some people were getting just to fill out their house. <laughs> just to fill out your house. I know. And, and now it wasn't super, super common, but it was common enough that people could avail of it. And you had, you know, interest only mortgages. And so all these, this money was being lent out. And look, you could argue very recklessly, uh, but at the end of the day, the banks were willing to give that money and people were willing to sign the bottom line to say yes to it, not necessarily considering the future. Now, we know track record in handling credit before, so we kind of thought, why not? Let's give it a go. Unfortunately, as everybody knows, that backfired horribly on us. So we had the Troika in, we had the IMF in, we had loads of different factors coming in. And these new rules and loads of different regulations came in on the back of it. And the end result is that credit was heavily curtailed because credit was one of the big drivers of our last crash. So the thought was, well, if you can curtail that, the next generation coming up won't have these issues and we'll balance out. But unfortunately, at that time, building also stopped. So we did have an overstock. And I remember them kind of saying, oh, look, you know, it'll take a couple of years to catch up on the overstock and we'll start building again and, and we'll catch up on ourselves and we'll be, it could be roses in the garden. But the, the new regulations that came out on the bank weren't necessarily as well thought through because you can't build in factors uh, without knowing the future. You can't know the future. So things that came in, there's a huge amount of protections against repossessions. So it's very difficult for a bank, and I'm going to just talk about the bank side here for a second, to yeah. repossess a house. Now, a bank is about making money. So if they can't recoup their money via you either repaying or taking the house back and selling it, that's a uh, that's not in their favor. No, that's one side. Another side is they have to have a minimum amount of funds sitting, basically sitting there in the bank, just in case another crisis happens. And it, I could be corrected, but I think it's up to up to seventy five percent of the value of the amount of mortgages they send out. They have to have that up to seventy five percent that ring fenced in just cash, just in case. And that's a huge amount of money they have to sit on. And which makes them extra prudent because if they're going to give out money, they want to make sure that A, they have 75% sitting there, but also that they get that money back because a bad debt is not going to work for them anymore. So those two things alone make it really hard for a bank to even stay in Ireland. And you're seeing banks pulling out. And it is because they're giving out this money. They have to hold a pile on cash in Ireland to, to, just, to balance out the mortgages. And if things do go belly up, and it's very, it's very hard to repossess, particularly if it's the family home, because there are so many protections against the family home in Ireland. So unless something changes there, banks aren't going to be particularly enticed to stay here and stay lending. 
which is not good for our market and it's not good for buyers like you trying to get on the ladder or anybody mm. else trying to start out it does make things a bit more difficult so that's yeah so that's one side and then so that's for your 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 normal buyer your first time buyer or your switcher or your average person <laughs> working but they're not the only people in the market <laughs> when yeah. it comes to buying houses so i was reading a little bit into this so vulture funds and things like that they they get a bad rap um but they're uh, i'm not going to start sticking up for them by any manner or means but the other side of it is there are a lot of people who in ireland who are investors and they're investing their money to grow their wealth so maybe they can buy a house or they can do whatever and you do have vulture funds and their job is to make money for their investors but their investors at the end of the day are you and i and our pension funds and loads of other things so they're looking to buy you have a huge amount of foreign direct investment. That's a whole other kettle of fish. So there are other companies, people in other countries who have cash, who want to invest. Ireland is a well-off country that is developing really fast. And I know not everybody might feel it, but we are. We are a really high-level first yeah. world country between our pharmaceuticals and our IT and everything. Like We are right up there and very attractive from that perspective. Now, that could change and put a spanner in the works that if our tax rate, our corporate tax rate changes, we may not have the level of foreign direct investment. So that's a tap that could switch off. That could be a whole 10 podcasts in itself, because if mm. that switches off, then, well, that money would, if it's not there anymore, would affect the market. We can come back to that a bit. But then there are uh, different investment funds. And the particular one, um, I think, is having an impact on the market are REITs. So they're real, real estate investment mm -hmm. trusts. And they're interesting things because they're different to the average fund. They're what's called an alternate investment fund. And they fall outside, I know, a different remit. But the thing with these is you and I can invest in them, but also institutions can invest in them. And with the, with the, the threat of inflation, we're due inflation whether it'll happen or not i don't know we've had historically low inflation for the last 10 years so there is a good chance with all the printing of money and all the borrowing that inflation might rise so there are there's a lot of money there and in there's a general fear of leaving it in cash so if you're not going to leave it in cash you're going to invest it property is historically up and down but a good investment and if you don't want to invest directly yourself in property a REIT is a really good way to invest not just because you're investing in property relatively cheaply but from a tax perspective the tax is lower it's only 33 percent versus a lot of the other funds which are gross roll-up of 41 percent so for an investor ah i'm paying less tax i'm getting into the property market and the thing with these REITs REITs have rules so it's not just somebody buying up willy-nilly 75% of the assets in a REIT has to be in property or property-related businesses. Also, 75% of the income of a REIT has to be from rental income. So you have these guys running the funds. Their job, their job description is not to rip people off. Their job description is to follow the rules of their fund and buy all these properties. So you have a first-time buyer doing their best and saving up their money but you also have somebody else who's running, managing a REIT, whose job is to follow these rules and have all this income coming in and buy all these houses. And they're the same houses. And some of these investors are government investors. 
so it's the government as well so it's it's really hard to get a good balance on this they're only get a, a couple of the interested parties <laughs> well there's a lot to unpack there and they do get a bad rap so i know you mentioned a couple of things and you probably saw me taking down notes so you're right there's banks have to hold in ireland unlike a lot of the other european companies a percentage of cash in reserve from the previous crisis um, and that doesn't uh, attract a lot of banks because the way they make money is by taking your cash and putting it in the market and playing with it to make money from it so kbc and also bank have announced they're they're exiting the irish market yeah a couple couple other things you talked about was um potential increase in, in tax i know america has I've talked about a universal tax rate i wouldn't necessarily be too scared of that because a couple of points i've made here um on this side of the atlantic we are an english-speaking country uh, yeah. one of two but we're only one of one in the european union and um, yeah. we've got an insanely uh, good rep in terms of talented people and then our tax rate is actually still lower than the majority of other countries that we've competing against so i wouldn't get too worried up and there's a lot of other great people out there like david mcwilliams talking about this on a regular basis um so if people are interested in staying up to date with that also check out him. You talk about investment funds. They also get a bad rep on REITs. I think there's, if I'm correct here, looking into it, there's three of them in, in Ireland at the moment that they have to be on the stock uh, exchange as well. So if we talk about investment funds for, for a second, um, and then we'll go back to the three of the other four points I talked about, influence. Um, uh, they get a bad rap because they uh, don't have to pay tax. But initially but if if i've done my research correct enough if i've listened to you correctly as well um the average normal person can actually choose to do something like this it's called investing in your pension and if you invest in your pension you don't actually pay tax until you decide to take the money out so it's essentially the same thing that they're doing uh, and they are taxed on the dividend they earn um so this let's call it a loophole, it's actually available to the normal person as well. It's just called investing in your pension. So I know they get a lot of bad rep, but it's if we go back to the stat that I gave, and I'm looking at my computer here, you know, 14.9% uh, increase in property prices from a 5 to a 6, 7.5% from a 6 to 7. And at this point, there was no international funds interested in investing in Ireland. Yeah. Currently today, there are international funds interested in investing in Ireland, which is a positive sign. Oh, yeah. Look, once there's foreign interest and it may make it tougher for the average person to buy a house for the economy as a whole, that's mm -hmm. a really positive sign. Mm -hmm. because you want people interested in you. You want people going, oh, what are they doing over there? Let's, you know, let's put somebody in that. Like that, that is a positive thing. But in the whole context, not everybody will agree because it depends on where no. you are. In well, that I'm, I'm in the position of should be disagreeing yeah and it's and this is it's it's the housing market is such a difficult one to unpack and i was just throwing some of the ideas out there and like there's there's another part as well and that's obviously our supply and mm -hmm. to be fair the new regulations that are coming in on the standard of houses like that 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 is really required because if you look at the pyrite and mica up you know and up in donegal and sligo like that's taken five or six thousand houses out of the market like they're yep. not like very few of those are going to be livable houses which puts another five or six thousand families back on the market essentially 
fighting for the same type of houses how it, i don't even know how that's going to work out and then there's the the fire regulations you have those uh, priory hall and all these things so having better regulations coming in and better standards of houses is good unfortunately it puts the price up again and it puts it makes it a bit slower and it makes it a bit harder to get through planning so i don't know <laughs> and it, it, it's it's not only young people looking for houses on that thing because you talked about families let's say covid has caused many couples to break up now there's yes. one of those couples looking for an alternative house which puts them on the market as well so there's a lot of people looking one of the points of influence that i made that impacts um whether there potentially be a property uh, crash on the horizon is unemployment and i know i touched on 24 percent. i'm sure there's a re- more recent statistic that's gone off q2 of 2021 um at 24 percent but uh once the dust settles around this craziness of COVID, uh, I imagine that percentage will go down. I'd be shocked if it didn't go down because that's incredibly high. I know when I studied for my living set, it was at about 13.5%. You'll never get it to zero ever. But no. my, my, my question for you is, if that goes down, are you worried that the prices of property, that could influence the prices of property to go up? property market is such a some people might say dysfunctional some people might say look we've never broken ground like this before mm-hmm. um, and as it stands and look like what i'm saying it's it's I, I don't have any extra expertise here or anything so we we may not be in a bubble you know this may be the new way property is and we just have to look at a different way of doing it be it making renting more affordable and more probable for people because going on a year-to-year renting contract is not it's not a way to raise a family it's not a way to to live comfortably in a house um but at the same time if we do start building proper quality houses and potentially if we do start building up in the cities and changing from a model of everybody must have their own three-bed semi-detached or their own detached home in the country and uh, maybe potentially embrace a more uh what, what a lot of other countries have and that is your know, apartment living you can get mm-hmm. a lot more houses built in a lot much smaller space at generally a better price than more satellite houses spread along a main road and what that will do as well it'll make amenities less expensive it'll make loads of things you know broadband electricity all those things will be less expensive to to put in and service apartment blocks and things so that might have an impact but well, it, this, sorry, you weren't finished. Yeah. No, 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 you're fine. Go on. I was going to say this, this leads me to one of the points I sent you in an email a few days ago in leading up to this was around, you, you mentioned properties. Let's talk about high rise, specifically high rise in Dublin. I know there, yeah. there's plans to build a 45 story uh, apartment block in, on, on the North Quay in, in Dublin city centre. Um, one of the things that's cited in this piece of research is that Jordan, Georgian buildings will be protected uh, and most of these high rises are down at the Docklands so from the city they won't be an eyesore because when you go to a a foreign city which is lots of uh, skyscrapers and you think of it when you're outside of the city or a little bit outside of it you can't really actually see a lot of the skyscrapers Dublin point example here someone gave a great example um Shane Fleming actually he said that when you're walking around the city, how often can you see the spire from a lot of the streets that even when you're close to it, you can't really, 
it's only accessible from a certain number of streets that you can see it. So um, some people argue that it's going to be expensive to build these high-rise buildings. Uh, other people argue in the point that, you know, it will lead to reduced traffic congestion. Uh, so high-rise in uh, Dublin, you think it's a, a potential answer to a problem or are they just throwing money to try and make money? That is a really good question. Um, I, If you look around at any of the really successful cities around the world, they all have high rise. Mm -hmm. And I think with Ireland, I think we would benefit from high rise, but that's this is a personal opinion, nothing more than mm -hmm. that. I really think we would because we have so much going for us as a country between like very educated people, we've great industries, we've foreign direct investment, we've loads of brilliant things and a, a good way to fix a housing problem long term would be to have more accommodation in a very small space and that is high rise but it would have to be done in a way where the high rise buildings were built properly and solidly and sustainably with amenities around them and if you look at like Singapore or some of those countries like the amount you could have thousands of people in one apartment block over there and it's very normal to rear a family and there would be you know creches built in to these uh, apartment blocks and they'll have proper amenities outside they'll have play parks and gyms and swimming pools and everything's maintained properly there'll be internal gardens and just do it really properly so that somebody would be happy to live there for the long term and have them managed properly mm -hmm. and I think that way we we could be onto something but it would it, it can't follow our historical train of just throw something up there and hopefully nobody looks at the fire rings. It, it has to be done where everything is to a caliber where somebody would be happy to spend 20, 30, 40 years of their lives mm. doing it that way. Then we could have something absolutely brilliant. And, and there are loads of examples around the world. Like any city can show you really good quality apartment blocks. It's, it's not new and it takes a while for people to get used to it as well, because to be fair, the Irish psyche, we're, we're only getting, we've always wanted to have our own homes. It's built into us back from yeah. the time we got back our independence and all of that. And, and having that house, having, you know, your own roof over your head, it's a lovely thing to have. It's a security to have, but a lovely thing over your head, having your own home, we would read as a property, a full on property with a garden and a lawn or, you know, a lot of what, you know, it it's not necessarily an apartment because it's new to us. But if you were to ask somebody who lives in Europe or in America or you know, in the cities in America or in Asia, an apartment block is their property, the way we would view a three bed mm -hmm. seven detached. And it Bingo. is, it's a switch in mindset as well. So I do think, and potentially as Ireland grows, like we're becoming more global um, and we're being influenced by other countries in a positive way that it might just come into our psyche a bit more that look, living in an apartment is, it's a fantastic way to be like build rear your kids in a place where you're really close to the zoo and you're really close to cinemas and you're really close to like properly maintained play parks and quality schools and and you could walk everywhere like that's a changes, thing. change is something that people are people are not always open to it takes time mm -hmm. i think it takes time it takes a generation at least i think to change because what we've done since the 70s and 80s that psyche from being a poor country to being the modern society um, with the Celtic tiger to being 
this new version that's going to be post-COVID, they're all very different psyches. And we've, we've, we've grown so much. Another 10, 10 years could have a massive impact on how we look at things and view things and what, what is our new normal. Side note, I used to live in Perth, <laughs> Perth in Australia. Um, I moved out there for a year in, I said this on the last podcast, either 2015 or 2016. I can't remember. It's embarrassing that I can't. Um, but I worked in a, in, 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 in a pub when I was over there. So I used to be driving home late at night, two or three in the morning, sometimes four in the morning when the pub was closed. And one of my favorite things, I'm a man of simple things. One of my favorite things was looking at the city skyline of the skyscrapers as I was driving home. Oh, it, it put a smile on my face every night when I was driving home because I could just see this huge city. And I think there's only a population of one million in Perth, which is the same as Dublin. Fun fact, it's the most isolated city in the world. Wow. Yeah, because between there and the next city, there's it's just basically desert. Um, but yeah, so it would be cool to have that same feeling driving home from work in Dublin. But that's just me. Uh, you were going to say something? Yeah, no, I think you're right. There is something quite beautiful about a lit up skyline of a, of a city that's that's doing well. Mm. And there's a, a pride can be attached to it. Like there's songs about New York. There's songs about all these beautiful cities around the world. And beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I get that. Mm -hmm. But I think a well-designed building that, you know, is safe and done properly and that you could live in. That's a wonderful thing. For sure. Government intervention is something that people are potentially calling for, depending on who you read and what you read and where you read. Um, according to Sharon Donnery uh, from the Central Bank, there should be 260,000 more households in Ireland. And that was a document uh, released in 2020. Uh, in the five years leading up to the pandemic, there was just one house built for every additional seven people in the population, uh, substantially less than what was required. This is not a quick fix. This is a symptom of a much wider problem is what it, the, the quote is that I'm reading from here. So what, what, what can the government do is, is probably one of the questions. A couple of things that I've noticed from my research is um, there's this thing called a part five, which is where uh, it says local authorities have relied more on private development, but not only uh, via so-called part five, where builders must set aside a portion of developments for social and affordable housing, but also buying stock directly from the market. Uh, funds have bought up properties, but so too have local authorities, and in turn, the state have bankrolled funds via long-term lease arrangements, spending a vast amount on housing sports, which would be better directed in long-term to building its own stock. Uh, now there is political consensus that the state must build it more itself, also increases in part five uh, of an estate, which is a private builder, must set aside for social and affordable housing from 20% up from 10%. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Anything that builds houses is a good thing. <laughs> Anything that gets more houses on the market is a good thing. Um, yeah, I think they're playing around with models, which is mm. not a bad thing either, because most of the stuff that the, you only know if it's a good idea or a bad idea five, 10 years down the line. And a lot of these things that start off as a really good idea, like that we we had an excess of houses, so they stopped building. And now they realize that, we should actually start a building way before the excess of houses you know, ran out. But the excess of houses back after the last recession. Mm. Uh, and I like back in like there would have been council estates back in 60s, 70s, 80s. Yep. And the council, like, 
I, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but it was along the lines of, you know, people were given the option to buy the house, to have it as their own. So naturally, if you could own your own house and you had the income coming in, you could buy it at a good price from the council, which is a brilliant idea because it gave people ownership of their homes after a certain period of time. But the, the, the problem with that is the council never built any more after that. So they just sold off their current housing stock and didn't put anything in place to kind of go, we needed these houses in the first place to rear generation of people. What happens now? So there, there wasn't the foresight to maybe, you know, cycle that again. And I think that's what they're starting to do now in a slightly different way. So instead of them being standalone, you know, council estates to use the, the old, old phrasing for it, they're mixed in with modern estates. And that could work out really well. It could, you, but it, it means you have, let's say, a council house right beside somebody who's paid four or five hundred thousand for their house and that can work perfectly but it doesn't always work out perfectly because you have somebody Mm. who's just above the housing line having to buy their own house and then you have somebody else who who you know isn't who's only earning a small amount less who gets their house for essentially free So, so i don't know like there's a massive amount there but do you know what it's always a positive that they're doing something there is something coming in place where you have people getting a chance to get on the property ladder or getting a home over their heads that they wouldn't have had otherwise so no matter what it's a positive how it pans out i don't know and what does the 10 to 20 percent actually look like in reality we'll see yeah. well, we'll see. you talk you talk about council houses back in the 60s and 70s and there's these new schemes coming in one of them is the um shared equity plan uh, it's essentially, in summary, a 30% stake. The government will have a 30% stake in uh, new homes for first-time buyers. Now, the property can be a max value of 400000 and it must be a new home. Um, and the owner will be required to pay back the stake. So there's there's a potentially, the, what, 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 depending on what type of person, what angle you look at this, it could be a pro or a con. So the reason why I'm saying that is if prices of houses go up and the government owns 30% of your house, you're going to be paying back more money. Just do the maths on it. But if prices of houses go down, you're going to be paying back less money and it could cost the government. Someone quoted as much as 240 million in the example that they gave, which is a lot of money. So um, I'm not sure about the shared equity scheme because I don't know how many new houses that are being built. I want to buy a property in Dublin. I don't know how many new houses are being built that are affordable for 400,000. Because you shared with me a, a, a link to a... Um, uh, a house but it was one of those uh pe- people yeah people consistently bid on it and it was up at uh, seven hundred thousand, but it was a four bed house in lucan and i was like what that is nuts so i don't know four hundred thousand for a new jumped. house is going to be snapped up yeah that uh, since that time i was just watching it because it was basically a house for sale in duke and it actually got a little bit into the media as well the last time i checked it it was up at 1.2 million ah i know it would bring tears to your eyes wouldn't it well i'm trying to get on the market so yeah <laughs> <laughs> it does <laughs> it's now i look i can only assume that is a total outlier and that's why it got a bit of media attention mm. but it does show the demand there for houses and it does it's it, it it just there's something dysfunctional going on and i i don't know how to go about fixing it but something has to be done and if if 
a, a shared equity scheme helps people who wouldn't normally get on the ladder get on the ladder, then that is a win. No matter what, that is a win. You're right. Here's the bit I can't wrap my head around, though. I looked at the average wage, particularly of a person, I'm 28, of a person between 26 and 36. I earn, a, uh, I earn a good bit more than the average person does. And I can't afford a house valued at more than half a million, right? But how are these houses being snapped up by people? I'm like, where are these individuals getting this money from? Because I know I earn more than the average and I can't get it. Now I have my own difficulties because I'm self-employed, which doesn't make it easy. It makes it a little harder to, to get on the property ladder. But still, uh, I, I, I just see... Another house snapped up for six hundred thousand, and like the this house was six hundred thousand, and then then you come back a week later and it's seven hundred and ten thousand, and and then it's bought, and it's like, who has the money to buy that? Where are they getting that from? But yeah, that could lead me down an entire different rabbit hole that would probably not make good yeah. for the podcast. And it just it just goes to all the vested interests. Like, I, I don't even know all the vested interests, but like you, you have mm. the REITs and the funds, but you also have foreign direct investment and foreign direct investment doesn't necessarily have to be from a company. It could be from an, an individual with money. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of countries that have money that they're willing to invest in a country like Ireland. Yep. There's... You, you just don't know who's behind. Recent estate in, that recent estate in Maynooth, wasn't there? One that yeah. was bought up? Yeah. Just like that, just snapped up. The right price came in, and they bought it. That was, I think, triggering of some of the, a lot of the more recent conversations in the news about um, real estate and the price of real estate. Because in in one fell swoop, big headache for the developer. He didn't have to sell off onesie twosie houses. He got the whole lot done at a really good price. Yeah, the, people spoke positively about that being a good deal for developer, but. I had my business hat on and I was like, is that, if you go to a store and <laughs> the store has a crate of Coca-Cola, right? And someone comes in and goes, I'll buy one of those cans of Coke. And the store owner goes, one euro, please. And then there's a thousand cans of Coke and someone comes in and goes, I'll buy all of them off you right now. But I don't want them for 10 grand. I want them for seven grand. And the store owner goes, well, yeah, I'll get rid of them right now. So, but when you do the maths on it, they're not making as much money. And then when you look at the solicitors, the solicitors only really have to file one document compared to, let's say the housing estate of 400 houses, or that's probably large. Let's say they had 100. They have to yeah. file 100 different documents and they're making 99 times more documents processed, which therefore more money. So um, that was my thought. Like, was that really a great deal from the person who owned it? I don't know. Depends on what profit margin he's looking for. Yes. Yeah. I would see that and how quick a turnover of what plans he has in the pipeline. You just don't know. And maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Um, but that's what happened. The cost, the, the cost of build is something that uh, has come up a couple of times. Uh, yeah. and there's an article on this. Uh, they want to establish why it costs so much to build property in Dublin. Um, there's economists from Trinity College Dublin, I think it's Roland Lyons, has uh, given his thoughts on this. He says he's long called for detailed government-sponsored study to lay out all aspects of the cost of building. Uh, are there any, and the answer may be, no, I don't have any thoughts on this, but are, have you got any thoughts on why, why 
it costs so much to build a property here? Um, I, I, I wouldn't know most of the costs that go in, but um, I do, I would know only a tiny high level that to build something close to a passive house or close mm. to a house that's, you know, A or B rated, which is what they need to do to, well, for sustainability, carbon side of things, which we have to because whatever the price of houses, we need the planet to survive so that we can pay these money for these houses. Um, so they, to build a passive house can be more expensive. Now, it's totally mitigated by the running costs ongoing. It's like getting an electric car. You pay more up front, but the running costs are a lot less. So with a passive house, it's that. But the to get all these extra regulations, it's not just throwing up a wooden frame, putting a bit of cladding around it, sticking in a few windows. There's a lot more insulation, a lot more thought, a lot more um, yeah. things to be thought through to get a passive house. But see, I think over time, we'll get better at that and we'll get faster and easier Agreed. and we'll have economies of scale. So maybe at the moment it's more expensive to build. Maybe it's just an adjustment period as skills change and materials change. And we're just through that more expensive period until you know yourself, you get better at something, you get more efficient at something and you can bring down your own prices. It might be the same with this. After that, I, I don't know. You know more than you think you know, though, because what you said has been quoted a few times in articles, so you don't give yourself enough credit. <laughs> but I'm always conscious of, of there are so many factors and as much as I might read stuff and as much as I might learn and kind of get my own points of view, inevitably, you can never have the full picture. There's always something else. But thank you for that. I'll take that, read. Yeah, there was information published last year by Dublin City Council. Um, I went and became a stat monster for this podcast. And this is probably the final stat I have. Or I think there's one or two more, but it shows that the average cost was almost 430,000 on total delivery costs in these developments, according to Dublin City Council, which is a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. A couple more things I want to talk about because we're getting close to the hour. There's two terms that people ask me to explain and, uh, and they were when it came to mortgage lending and the two terms were loan to income limit was the first one which is essentially if you're going to buy a property right now in Ireland you're, you're looking for uh, the, the bank will lend you three and a half times your annual income so the example that uh, I have here is if you earn 50,000 euro a year a nice wage this means you're allowed to borrow a max of 175,000 under the central bank's rules uh, if you're buying with your partner who also, let's say, earns 50000 that amount now doubles to 350000 which, if you're looking around properties in Dublin, don't get excited. Um, however, there is a rule. <laughs> in, in, in a calendar year, 20% uh, of mortgage uh, lenders are allowed to give out, to give, uh, out money to first-time buyers that are above this cap. So they're think of it as an exemption some people can get an exemption that will get up to four and a half times the applicant's income um however if you are thinking about this i know we're recording this in july and it'll come out in july uh, they're probably all taken up the exemptions by now it's said that and i looked in and acquired a lot of the banks most of the exemptions are taken up in the first half of the year and now that we're in the second half of the year don't get excited so that's the first thing, three and a half times. Was it ever more than that? Well, I anecdotally, I can give you my experience of being a first-time yeah, buyer. Yeah, please do. 
<laughs> and I, I will bet you people would throw things at their phones when they're listening to this. But back in 2006, and this is not a correct thing to do, naive me got mortgage approval for seven and a half times my income. Holy moly. Not finished yet. I was three <laughs> weeks into a job I had never worked before. Wow. Yes, and I signed gladly on that dotted line, not realizing the millstone I was giving myself because a year later, that house was worth so little and there was job losses, there was everything. It was a mess. It destroyed us for the 10 years afterwards. But Mm. yes, yes, rules were more flexible back then. For sure. To put it mildly. (laughs) But you were saying that with the central bank, it is because of things like that. And I didn't get 100% mortgage. It was a 90% mortgage, I believe I got at the time. It wasn't even 100%. And it was because of that on a massive scale that the central bank had to step in. And this is what we've come up with. So you're saying, yes, the loan to value up to three and a half times your income. That's one. There are three things the bank really looks at. Or well, the banks have to apply uh, apply uh, what's the word adhere to apologies yes uh, when it comes to particularly first-time buyers but it's for for people who are switching and it's for investors as well but particularly particularly first-time buyers and that is your loan to value three and a half times your income exactly like what you said there uh, sorry loan to income that's 3.5 then the loan to value obviously first-time buyer does have more leeway up to 90 percent a switcher or somebody who's on a second time mm-hmm. house or upgrading or whatever they're 80 percent and investor 70 percent now a lot of banks kind of do the investor house up to 50 percent it's kind of just to protect themselves a bit more as well just again because of history all this is because of history but the third one then is the affordability and this one isn't spoken about as much this is the third big thing so the affordability people will kind of put it in the same bucket as the stress test a two percent stress test so what the bank is actually looking for in reality is that, fine, you, you need to hit two of the three of these, right, to even be able to step forward for any bit of mortgage approval. But affordability is to be able to, after your mortgage is paid, have money to live on. Because again, what happened before as well, people had very little money to live on by the time their mortgage is got every month. So the affordability of what you're looking for is if they stress test you, that, so that interest rates, if they went up up to 2%, you would still have as a single person kind of 1,000 to 1,300 euro left over. Gotcha. And as a married uh, couple, 1,900 to 2,100, I think I'm right with that, um, disposable income after you've paid your mortgage and your main expenses have gone out. So they look at all your expenses going out and you need to have that amount of money well, left that's... over. I keep interrupting you. I apologize. (laughs) You're all right. (laughs) You're interrupting people. I do. (laughs) But yeah, so it's it's three key things, and you need to have at least tick the boxes for at least two of them. Obviously, ideally three to give you better chances. But to get past the first hurdle, that's it's your loan to income, your loan to value, and your affordability. That's good to know the stress test because I I I. Vaguely remember hearing of that, but it's only come back to my head since you said it. Um, and then the the loan to income and the loan to value one was 
you said um, where you're required to pay a, a minimum deposit. And for first-time buyers, I believe it's 10% uh, for any property. Uh, the example that I had here in terms of maths was if you're a first-time buyer and you want to buy a house for 300000 uh, the rule means that you'll need a minimum deposit of 30000 before you can be lent the remaining 270000 We've discussed a lot in this podcast um, from you know mortgage lending rules to some potential ways to fix a uh, potential crisis to high rise in Dublin to, you know, <laughs> is, is there a potential property crash on the horizon? And we spoke about how the property cycle runs in seven years and some of the stats around that and some of the influences reminder, they are access to capital inflation, GDP, unemployment, and I included population growth as well. And potentially government intervention, you could probably add as a sixth. And then you touch on REITs and investment funds and, we started with the importance of location and stating that at the top of the podcast, uh, Ireland has one of the highest percentage of homeowners in Europe. So a lot was discussed in this hour. Um, I'm sure we could probably make this another 10 hour podcast if we stayed on the line. Um, but from my end, I've enjoyed this. I hope people get value from it. And uh, we'll be back again with another podcast, not the housing crisis. We're going to pick another topic, but uh, Kel, thanks for being my guest today. Thanks for having me on Reed. Beautiful morning, beautiful summer, my morning, baby.